Hello, New City. Hello, hello. Welcome. And um, yeah, as we continue our series on Revealed, the revealing of, of God's glory in Isaiah and seen in Jesus, I'm going to start this week by painting you a picture. Uh, and it's a picture from Revelation. The end of the Bible contains some fantasy-sounding uh, stories, but they may or may not come to fruition in exactly as they sound, but they're um, pretty revealing of, of some of the things that, that we go through in our faith. And so I want to paint this picture for you. You're, you're standing in front of a valley, and uh, this, this valley is, is barren. There's, it's, it, there's, a, there's a hill on the other side and a, and a flat plain. And on the other side of this hill, there, there marches an army. You start to see an army emerge. And this army is huge. It's, it's gigantic. And you start to feel really small as you see the numbers, the mass coming over the hill. You feel pretty alone and exposed. And when you see the army, this, this army, it looks terrifying. They are armed uh, with horrifying weapons. They look uh, angry. They're filled with, with, with bloodlust. They look like they want to kill you. And in the middle of the army marches, and you can see it now, a huge, snarling, giant beast. A dragon with ten heads. And as, as it gets closer, all of a sudden it, 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 it almost blots out the sun. It's so big and it's clear that this beast is commanding this army and then next to that beast is something that for a second gives you slight comfort it's it's a handsome looking man but then this man opens his mouth and shouts something at you and whatever he says is accusational and and not just accusational in a generic way, but in a way that makes you feel terrified, ashamed, guilty. This picture is in Revelation 19, and it's, it's a picture that's meant to, to portray the overwhelming terror that seems to face all of us. It seems like there's lots of evil in the world. It seems like that we are not in control and there's something big and scary and this beast, maybe he, he'll appear in this way or not, but this beast is very real. It is Satan. The beast is Satan, and his mouthpiece there, that, that man is, is mentioned as a false prophet, but he's, it, it's not just a story that's made up. It wasn't, you know, John, you know, Apostle John wasn't on a bad trip. This, this accuser is there to confuse, scare, terrify, and shame us. And we can feel that at times too. We can feel the shame and the terror that feels so personal. And so the question is, what, what can we say in return? What, what, what do we do in return? What, what can we say to the beast, to the accuser, to, to, the, to the massive army? What can we do? Isaiah 43, 11 through 13, God says this, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. 
God, I pray as we go through this that you would uh, reveal your saving power. You would reveal your, um, your pursuit of us and what it means that you say that you save us and why we can trust it. In your name, amen. So as I've said, we're going through the series Revealed, and we've talked so far about the goodness of God. Uh, Patrick and I shared back-to-back weeks about the goodness of God, and I can, I can summarize that as uh, his goodness is seen in Christ's persistence. Jesus is constantly pursuing us, and he's persistent. He wants to help us, and he's invitational, too, in his persistence. He invites us into his goodness. And now we're moving into... The second of three characteristics in this series, God's sovereignty. Uh, we talked about that, that God is, is revealing himself as good, sovereign, and wise. And so now we're moving into sovereignty, right? Sovereignty, the, it means to have ultimate authority. When you are sovereign, you, you are the ultimate authority and power. In, especially in a, in, in a nation or a kingdom, the sovereign has the power and the, and the authority both. And so... In this picture we get from Revelation, it again, metaphor or not, it feels real because there are very evil things happening and there are things that make us feel very small. Uh, and on top of that, we have our own shame, right? The accuser uses our own failures, our own flaws, the things that we're, that we're not proud of. And so the question is, how? where's God's sovereign power and authority? So let's go back to Isaiah 43, and I'm going to make a a few observations for us. First off is that God is talking here. It says, I. We should pay attention in Scripture when someone says, I, and if that's God. Not that we shouldn't pay no attention to when humans say, I, but when God says, I, that's really important. It's very clear that God is trying to avoid miscommunication. God has been misrepresented in culture uh, or gets misquoted or some of the things he's said has been attributed. I think of a poster I saw of uh, Steph Curry. This was at a a sports store and it's a poster and it said, I can do all things, quote, Steph Curry. And uh, Steph Curry, you know, maybe he says that, but he's not the originator of that quote. That quote is actually from Philippians. And the end of that quote is, I can do all things, through Christ who strengthens me. The quote is actually about doing all things because of your dependence on someone else, not that you can just do anything. Uh, And maybe Steph Curry means that. I don't know. I don't want to misquote or misrepresent him, but I thought that was interesting that instead of that coming from Philippians, it was from Steph Curry. Um, Another one that that gets miscommunicated is, I've heard this several times, God helps those who help himself. That is not in the Bible. That is actually very counter to what Scripture is all about, what our God is all about. He loves helping those who can't help themselves. Uh, we're going to talk about later how he came to seek and save the lost. That, that's the, the, the core to him being a Savior is that he needs to save us from what we can't save ourselves from. God is talking here. We should pay attention to exactly what he is saying. This is a big deal. The second observation is that, and this goes along with what we've talked about with goodness so far, but our rebellion, this is the observation, our rebellion does not deter God's pursuit of us. He is not hindered by our running. Uh, the situation here uh, is, it, 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 it's not good for Israel at this time that this was written. 
it was, uh, they were scattered all around. A couple nations had already uh, taken them over and scattered them around. And this passage even mentions, I, you know, it, God says, I declare to Satan and proclaim when there was no strange God among you. Um, the picture here uh, is, is the picture of the temple. And uh, the temple, I wish I could go into this further, but the temple is representative of our hearts um, in the New Testament. It, it, it's representative, you know, the temple is, is the place of worship. And so um, it's important to, to glean some lessons here. What, what Israel would do is that they would make contingencies in case God failed. Uh, they would make political contingencies in case God wasn't going to come through on what he said. And when they made those alliances, those other nations would say, okay, prove that you're really allied with us, so put, put our gods in your temple. So what was meant to be a place of, of intimate relationship between God and his people turned into uh, a house that was, it was no longer just about him. It was about any other God that they could trust for their salvation. And so God, despite the rejection and the rebellion, and I mean, it's just, it was just flat out rude. <laughs> he still chooses and chose to save them time and time again, and that's representative to of us. He is not deterred by our uh, hasty promises of, of, of hatred towards him or a rebellion or running. He continues to pursue. He continues to pursue. And lastly, the last observation is that once God starts a work, it's done. Starting and finishing a work aren't... Uh, aren't two separate actions really because God, he, he can't start something and then not finish it because he's God. Once he declares it to be so, and he does it, it's done. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Once he, has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? That's, that's a number is God. Once he says, I will save you, he's going to do it. None can turn it back. I, I think of, uh, when I think of starting things and, and not finishing, I think of, of my, my roommate, Phil, in college, who has uh, a lot of great qualities. But one of the things that we would joke about is uh, he, he would never finish a book. So our, uh, our room started to look like the beginning of Ghostbusters. There was books, piles of books everywhere of books that Phil would read and not finish. And then he would start to recommend these books to me. Like, you don't know how they end. I don't know if, you know... Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know what the, what the big point is. God is, is, is not like Phil or you or me. When he, when he sets out to do something, he doesn't procrastinate and he gets it done. Has he spoken and will he not do it? Who can turn it back? God finishes it. And again, so now we're going we're gonna to go to the, the promises now. So what, what gives God such confidence, right? What gives him such confidence? And, and what's fascinating is that um, it, it says declared, saved, and proclaimed. And so these, he has declared, saved, and proclaimed. And yet Israel at this point is in a position where it seems like evil is winning. That's the situation still. And so this promise, is, is, it's interesting that it's a promise with a past tense. It's like it's already done, but it's, uh, it's not yet. So what gives God such confidence to say that this is over, that he will save and so as we've been doing the, through the series, we're going we're gonna to look at Jesus again. As, as this Isaiah 40 and, and on is 
It's revealing the, the truth about Jesus and what Jesus was going to, to do. And so let, let's, go, let's go right to the most significant moment for, for our faith. Well, one of the, the two most significant moments, but it's on the cross. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So there's there's three things here that um, it says that, that Jesus would do, that he would declare, save, and proclaim. So the first that we want to cover is declared, right? Declare, it, it means to announce your intentions. If you, read, if you read the Gospels, the intention of God was always clear. It wasn't a plot twist. This wasn't, you know, Jesus wasn't a double agent that turned out to be a savior. He said all the time, I came to seek and save the lost. It's not the righteous who need, uh, I did not call, come to call the righteous, but, but sinners to repentance. It's not the, the healthy who, are, who need a doctor. It's the sick, right? For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save. He came to seek and save, and he came to redeem broken people, to call sinners to repentance, to bring forth life. That's what he declared. He announced his intention. And so this idea of of it being finished, what is it? It's the work of seeking and saving the lost. And what's interesting is when he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit at that time, uh, the curtain was torn in two. So now we move. He, he declared it. He said, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, the curtain tore in two. So the curtain was um, the curtain was the, the barrier between God and man uh, in the temple. God was perfect. Man was imperfect, to say the least. And it may sound harsh, but the presence of God could not be among people but God made a provision so that his presence could still be on the earth just behind this curtain. God had a, he had a, he had a Google location. You could, he could share his location with you and you could go there, but it was contained and stuck. And as long as God's presence was contained in the temple, <clears throat> nothing could ever really change in us. Hebrews says that, you know, people made sacrifices every year, but they, they couldn't remove the sins, really covered them. And so God decided to, to seek and save the lost and not just save them by saying, okay, you can get into my heaven, but he's going to unleash his spirit upon us and actually save us from the inside out so we can experience God in a real way, in a relational way, in the intimacy that he desired here on this earth. And so when Jesus said it is finished and the curtain tore him too, it was finished. It was done. God's presence was loose. There was no longer a barrier between God and man. It was finished. The saving had been finished. And lastly, it says that he declared saved and proclaimed. Proclaiming is to revel in the victory, to celebrate, to announce your victory. And Jesus was very clear about his victory. I think of the 11 standing before him uh, at his ascension. And it's, he, he said very uh there was no hidden meaning here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's done. 
And Jesus proclaimed it. He, he didn't hide his victory. When he marched out of that tomb, it was done. It was finished. Jesus wasn't being ironic. He wasn't being hopeful in, in a way that was unsure. This wasn't a 99% victory. All authority was his. God is sovereign in his saving power. He is sovereign in his saving power. When he said it is finished, it is real. And the authority that he has, that he's been given, he chooses then, even in in that great commission, in that ascension picture, after he says all authority, and he says, I'll be with you always. The power that he has received over death and sin, he has chosen to pour out on us in love. His sovereign power, his, his reign is a reign of service where he loves and serves and bleeds and died for us. And so that when, when the enemy, when, when life, when, when, when it comes at us, it has no authority over us because the authority has spoken. We were worth his blood. I think to, back to this, this picture we had in Revelation of this monster, his army, the accuser, our dread, our shame, our fear. And in this picture in Revelation 17, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, a, a, an army of, of angels shows up. Okay, that's awesome. We have, we have an army of angels, right? You can think of you know, the end of, of Avengers Endgame, the portals, there's angels. But then a single rider on a horse shows up. Brilliant, bright, white, except for his robe, which has been dipped in blood. And he pulls a sword out of his mouth. And I don't know why it's out of his mouth, except that the mouth communicates, the mouth and the sword communicate something spoken, something out of the mouth had the power. And I'd like to think that it was something along the lines of, it is finished. And then something fantastic happens. That single writer, it doesn't, nothing in the story implies that anybody but that single writer destroyed that entire army and imprisoned the accuser and the beast forever alone. We all just sat back and watched Jesus in his power and authority defeat evil for all time, our shame, our fear. Because of the blood that his robe was dipped in was his own. It was over. It was finished. He declared and saved and proclaimed in absolute sovereignty. It's over. We're just waiting for the final battle. But the victory has already been assured. And so if this is true, if, if, if these are past tense things for us, we need to replace some faulty thought patterns. And, and these, these are in me. These are the ones that I wanted to mention that we need to shift. I have this negative thoughts process and it, it it goes something like this I'll never I'll never get over this I'll never be done with this I'll never defeat this I'll never be good enough and we have to change that from I'll never to he already he already it's done it's finished my sin despite its presence has been and will be destroyed by the rider with the sword the blood is already shed I'll never to he already Another one is, here I go again. Here I go again. Here I can't believe I'm stuck in this again. I can't believe I'm doing this again. I can't believe I responded like this again. 
or here I go again into <clears throat> this situation, or, or it seems like I'm cursed, or whatever it is. Here I go again to here is the Savior again. God saved, capital S, saved, but he loves being our Savior. We are in a relationship of dependence. He is not tired of being your Savior. He loves coming to the rescue. I think of 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins and, and we confess continually. That's, it, it, there's, there's, a, there's a process of continual repentance. And I think we think that God is a little bit, you know, I think of, of me having uh, my son throw his fork um, at the table constantly. And I'm, okay, by, by the fourth of the time, you got to be kidding me, kid. No more fork. God is not, God is, God is not like that. He loves to be my savior and he is in it for the long haul. He will bring me to completion. Philippians 1.6 says, he w- I'm a part, I'm one of his works. Of course he's going to finish it. He can't uh, not finish his works. The last one is, I might as well to he is mighty. I might as well give in. I might as well do this. I might as well give up. I might as well. No, he is mighty. I need to trust his power. I don't have to be strong enough. He is strong enough in any circumstance. The end is decided, and it's over. God is sovereign in his saving power. When he says something is saved, it is saved. He has the power, he has the proof that that he did it, witnessed by 500 people after his resurrection. It's there. The question is, do I live like it is finished? Or do I live like it isn't finished? What if I live like I believe the sovereign Lord has won? What if that was my normal, constant constant state? Friends, I'm not there yet, but I, I see Jesus changing me, and, and, I, and I invite you into this too. So I invite you to reflect this week, what if I believed that the sovereign Lord has won today? Just, just ask that about today. When, when, what if I believed that the sovereign Lord has won today and how might that change me let me close with with prayer god thank you for being here thank you for the sovereign power that you exhibit that we can trust you yeah that you um, finish your work and you've chosen to work on us and that is a beautiful thing thank you that you have chosen to give your life for us so with your sovereignty instead of rejecting us when we reject you you've chosen with your sovereignty, to claim us as your own and to love us unconditionally. You are so good to us, God. In your name, amen.